Hello, and welcome to the Burning Castle podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Rinsberg. Each episode, I speak with a changemaker learning to unlock the creative potential of a world caught in chaos. These are the artists, actors, performers, musicians, designers, thinkers, entrepreneurs, filmmakers, activists, chefs, and countless others creating new paths amid crumbling institutions. You can follow us on Twitter at Burning Castle and on Instagram at Burning Castle Podcast. This week, I speak with Edgar Carrick, the hilarious, relentlessly brilliant Israeli writer who is internationally renowned for his fiction. In the episode, Edgar tells me why social media has had a flattening effect on his identity, especially during the pandemic, how he's rediscovering his audience through the one-to-one medium of email newsletters, and why he likes to write naked. I hope you enjoyed this great conversation with one of today's most dynamic and influential writers. So Edgar Carrot, thank you so much for joining me on the Burning Castle podcast. Edgar is probably known to everybody listening, if he's not by chance. He's absolutely one of the greatest writers today in all languages and from any country. Um, he's known, I would say, primarily for his short stories, but you work across media. You work um, theater, in video and film and so much more. And I think that's going to be part of what I want to talk about today with you. Um, but I think when, what I want to start out with just is where you are, because that's that's so much of such a big question today in the coronavirus world, where we are, why we're there. Um, so just just give us a little intro in that regard. Yeah, well, I, I, I just want to say, you know, that I was born and I grew up in the Tel Aviv area. Hmm. And as a professor, I always have this joke that I share with my students that I say to them, I'm just like Immanuel Kant, only without the brains. Because, because the, for the past 54 years, I've been living in only in four apartments. Wow. And the distance between the two furthest one would be four kilometers. So basically, since the day I was born, I've been taking my coffee in the same coffee place, you know. Imagine me as a six months year or six months old baby drinking my coffee. I still drink in the same place that I used to drink when I had diaper. <laughs> and and the and all this is just to say that that you're speaking to me now while I'm in Berlin mm-hmm. because for the first time in my life I took a, a sabbatical year away from a, a Israel and I'm living in a different place. And I, it's a strange experience, and it would have never happened if not for the COVID. Mm. But there was something about the pandemic that uh, that uh, my uh, teenage son uh, told me, and my wife, that he felt that he was stagnating, that basically he was watching YouTube and playing games all the time and zooming, boring zooms, and and he said, you know, I feel that life is too easy for me. I feel like I'm a I'm gift wrapped, you know. I'm protected. I, I want, I, I want to, I want things to be difficult. Mm-hmm. And then we sat down and thought, okay, how can we make things difficult? You know, we can tie you to bed. <laughs> we can punch you every time you go to sleep. And he wasn't that much into that. So, so we we thought that maybe an interesting or a challenging thing would be to to go to another place in the world. And uh, for him to study in English because it's not our native tongue, and uh, and basically the only 
place that we could afford doing it both to have a, both a good school and that we could afford an apartment was in Berlin. Mm-hmm. So we found ourselves in Berlin and and basically it began as our son's adventure, but became, of course, me and my wife's adventure too, because, because the strange thing is that uh, uh, when you live in the same neighborhood, uh, surrounded with the same people uh, for so many years, you, I realized that you don't look at details at all. You know, when I go to mm-hmm. my cafe, if you'd ask me uh, how do the table looks that look like, is there a tree outside? I would never know because I've been there for so many years that I don't have any kind of authentic experience when I enter the cafe. And suddenly here, when I'm in Berlin, you know, every tree looks strange, every square mm-hmm. looks suspicious, you know. I look at the store, I try to figure out what they sell there. I look at the poster, I try to, to understand if I'm looking at a sex symbol or a sex offender, you know, because I can't understand the text. <laughs> so so uh, I must say that it's kind of like, a, it's an interesting period because for me, for the first time, I would say in the last 30 years, the, the, the central thing in my life is my life and not some project. You know, in any other given time, you'd say, well, what, what's in your mind? I would say, I'm making a movie, I'm writing a book. But right now, I would say, I'm trying to figure out how you buy a ticket for the subway. You know, that's, a, mm-hmm. that's basically the, the excitement a part of my life at this moment. I was just reading a book by Pima Chodron, who is the great um, Buddhist monk, talking about how a turning point in her life was a sabbatical as well. Twelve months and she did nothing for those 12 months no teaching you know writing just here and there occasionally but it was not about the writing it's exactly what you're saying so um what got you to the point of taking the sabbatical because you could have gone to berlin for your son's sake and just continued to on to the next project why did you stop well this too i think had to do with the pandemic because i think that there was something about the pandemic and the lockdowns that they kind of broke the force of inertia in our life, you know, because I think that, you know, both of us, I would say 90% of the stuff that we do is not the stuff that we choose to do, you know. I don't mm-hmm. know. When you get back up in the morning, you drop your, your children at school, you go and buy stuff in the supermarket, you visit your sick aunt. It's not as if, like, you sit on a chair and say, Oh, what would I like to do? Oh, yes, I would like to drop my son at school. Yeah, that would be amazing. You know, we don't take those decisions. And with the lockdown and with the force of inertia, it was as if somebody kind of lifted the handbrake in the middle of a drive. And there was something about this feeling of stopping and this feeling of kind of being reflexive and asking yourself questions about a lot of the stuff that, that you do, that it was both challenging but interesting. And I thought that, you know, if I go to Berlin and I teach in Berlin and I do the same stuff I do in Israel, I miss the opportunity of really kind of a, a being a, a, a in closer touch with my emotions and my feelings and my wishes. So I said, you know, okay, if we go on an adventure, let it be an adventure all the way. Berlin seems to be a good choice for artists. I know um, a good friend of mine whose name is Romeo Alaef. He's a photographer who lives in Berlin and moved there. He lived in Brooklyn and was working as a photographer in Brooklyn and was priced out of Brooklyn and ended up in Berlin. Do you feel like there's something beyond the prices that keeps people in Berlin as as working artists? 
Well, well, I must say that, that, you know, as an artist, I always uh, felt lucky uh, writing and creating in Tel Aviv because, because let's say when I go to places like Paris or New York, they feel like museums. Mm. You know, like Paris is a museum of the 19th century. Yeah. In New York, it's a museum of the 20th century. But basically, you live in a place that really uh, has some kind of a, a, a Wikipedia photo of how things should be like, you know. Right. Let's say if I go to New York and I see two cops uh, uh, coming, uh, I don't know, to a breakfast place and asking for a salad, I would say, no, it's wrong. You should have a donut. You should be, <laughs> be fatter, you know. I know how a New York cop should look like. Right. What I liked about uh, Tel Aviv is that I always felt that it was a, a, a city that, that basically was debating it's its identity. Like, what is what is Tel Aviv? Is it a, a synagogue, a Chabad house, a, a gay street party? You yeah. know, a, 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 what what is it? Like, you know, is it Jaffa? Is it north of Tel Aviv? So, so uh, there is something about these things that that things are not yet decided. That it gives you a lot of freedom as an artist, and I feel the same about Berlin. I feel that mm. Berlin is really with the unification, with the East and the West, uh, with uh, parts that, you know, that have uh, sometimes a fascist and anti-Semitic uh, past and also a very st- strong liberal and uh, uh, green powers, you know, then, then it, it's a really good, a good uh, place to ask yourself, where am I? Who am I? What is this place? What is worth living for? What would you avoid? So there, I think that there's something about this vividness that gives you some kind of an elbow room uh, to ask questions and create. I, I can tell you in comparison that I lived in Jerusalem for a period of time. And it was very, very difficult for me to write while I was in Jerusalem. Because I felt that there was such strong narrative already existing there. You know, it's really like... Jerusalem, Jerusalem kind of doesn't give you the freedom uh, to move the stones around and to say, oh, no, actually, Jerusalem is another thing. You know, Jerusalem is Jerusalem. The wedding wall is the wedding wall. The dispute about the city exists all the time. And I think that, uh, that uh, Berlin is really, is really this kind of place that is totally open for interpretation with, you know, with, with its history being bombed away uh, with some kind of a conflicted attitude toward nationality, toward the past, and all those things uh, uh, really uh, offer some kind of a variety of narratives that uh, I don't see in other uh, major cities of, uh, of in countries that the history wasn't challenged. You know, I mean, if you talk to a Frenchman or if you talk to an Englishman, basically, you know, they could be critical or not critical, but in the bottom line. They say, oh, you know, we got something right. We've been living for the last 300 years. We shouldn't have started this war. We shouldn't have invaded this place. But all in all, we get something going. But when you talk to German people, you know, it's really, I think the Germans and Israelis are the only two people I know that can sometimes be against their own uh, national soccer teams. You know, it's like when Germans talk about German football, they talk about it, they, like, you know, what is this thing? You know, they have no soul, you know? <laughs> so so, so I, I, there is something that I like about this, this uh, point of view, which is very uh, subversive and it allows uh, 
allows you to see things in a different way. It, kind of, it has this kind of flexibility that you really don't have when you are part of a winning culture. My first book of fiction is called Tel Aviv Stories, and it's about um, the what I thought of as the underclass in Tel Aviv, which is the beggars and the homeless and the people you, you tend not to see. But in Tel Aviv, you did see them because they could still be individuals in that city. And this was, you know, 15 years ago. But today, I feel like when I look at Tel Aviv, I see a museum of the 21st century, which is never something I would think that I would see in Tel Aviv the way that I knew it back then. Um, but, you know, it speaks to the changing nature of, of Israeli identity and of Israeli literature, which you're, which you're so central to. And, you know, we used to have these big, you know, ideas, writers of Israeli fiction, David Grossman, Amos Oz, and it was conflict and it was identity. And you came and you gave something completely different, which was the Israeli individual, the Israeli typos, the, the, the character of Israeli life. Um, I think that's the question I have is, do you feel like the culture is moved, moving beyond all the big concepts, conflict and history and Holocaust and moving it towards something in Israel that is more individualistic and is more quirky and zany and more reflective of the kind of writing that you're doing? And you were just with you were surfing that current or do you feel like you're more an outlier to the the Israeli culture as it is today? Well, well, you know, I, I, I think the Israeli, Israel culture today is so many things, you know. So, so, so I think that is, I think that you know that there are many streams, and, and I'm a part of one of them. But for me, uh, being a child of Holocaust survivor, I always uh, watched my parents uh, basically uh, impersonating uh, sabras, trying to pass as people who who do not do not have a a. a Troublesome past in another continent. Mm-hmm. You know, my, I remember that uh, one time somebody told my mom that she has a Polish accent. And I remember after training in saying the, that, that word again without an accent, you know, it's just mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. something that you really didn't want to bring up. Yeah. And I, I think that when I was a child, I, I kind of had the living in a socialist society, there was some kind of a, a facade of what it means to be Israeli. But something different back home. So you know, you would go outside and talk about politics in Hebrew and be have a very good time. But then you come back and you talk to your wife in Yiddish, you know, <laughs> and eat your Eastern European food. You know? And there was something about me that when I came to write, I wanted to write a not about the social narrative, a very much like Grossman or Oz. I didn't want to tell the story of the society. I wanted to tell the stories that. People were hiding after they were closing their doors. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I wanted, in a sense, maybe to tell my parents' story, you know, that they, that, that they were really, uh, they were kind of trying to merge together two kinds of identities, the Israeli identity that they aspired to and the traumatic Eastern European uh, identity uh, that they traveled with. And, they, and I think that, 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 that there was something in the way, in the way that I wanted to... Uh, uh, to write about Israel was, I almost had a wish to, to break this kind of very uh, uh, solid narrative to pieces. I wanted to deconstruct it in a way. And believing that if I deconstruct it enough, there would be kind of a freedom uh, for me to be myself in it. Because I think that kind of growing up as a child, you know, with parents from the Holocaust, you know, uh, 
uh, with the very strong Israeli ethos. My father was in the Irgun. My mother was among the people who uh, started the Tria, which was a very uh, right-wing political party. So kind of growing up knowing that I'm supposed to be a great soldier and I'm supposed to bring Israeli society a step further. But at the same time, having doubts and thoughts and fears and confusion. So I said, okay, in life I have to pretend to be okay, but writing is kind of a confessional uh, a place, almost kind of like a safe, safe city, as they had in the Bible, a place where I can be me. And I think that when I looked for inspiration for writing, I didn't look at the great Israeli writers whom I really love and admire, but I looked for inspiration among, among Jewish diaspora writers, like Kafka, Isaac Babel, Bashevis Singer, yeah. Shalom Aleichem, that, that there was something in their point of view that wasn't trying to tell the story of their country, not even the story of the shtetl, but the story of an individual who tries to belong to something that he can't always figure out. You know, I feel many times that uh, in, when I was a child in Israel, that I was trying to, to pick up on something that I didn't even know what that thing was. And, mm-hmm. and, and it, it, I have a story called uh, The Son of the Head of the Mossad. Mm-hmm. And, in the, and it's the story about the son of the head of the Mossad. And of course, the head of the Mossad, especially in the past days, would have a a fake alias, like he would work in something else. So, so the story about the, the, the son of the head of the Mossad, that he really wants to be like his father, but he feels that his father is a construction manager. <laughs> so he wants to be like his father, but he's, who the hell is his father? You know, when I grew up as a child, I even wrote a fiction story about it. Uh, the biggest Israeli children book uh, nationalistic hero was a guy called Danny Dean. And Danny Dean was an invisible child who helped Israel win its war against uh, Syria and against mad Nazi scientists. And I thought to myself, there's something so fitting that this kind of new Zionist role model would be an invisible child. So the children who read those books say, we want to be just like this guy, but we don't know how this guy looks like, you know? So there was something about this kind of a obscure ambition that, uh, that was always uh, interesting. And I felt that, that you know, that if I, I find the right way to, to write, it would give me this kind of wiggle room to be myself. You know, the, some of these stories, when they're set against Israeli society, bring out the, this, this contradiction or some sort of clash between the individual and the, the bigger society, exactly as you're speaking about. But some of your stories are really just about the clash between the individual and baseline of of life of just you you highlight the absurd that's found in the mundane that we see um that things aren't the way they should be and that's just the way they are and the stories really show that to you to as a reader but it, in a world in which the mundane has become so in, insane and so crazy you know on a moment by moment basis um, do you feel like that the concept of the absurd is less a, an existential question today and almost it's becoming an issue, not of the absurd, but of the outrageous. We're constantly outraged, which makes it more of a moral or a political question than a, than a question of a exis, existence. I, I, I totally agree with you because, because you know, I think that the, the difference between absurd and outrageous 
is basically a, a, a difference of attitude. Mm. Like I mean, when you look at something and you think it's absurd, it can amuse you. Uh, you can be curious about it, you know. Uh, but basically, you want to interact with it. Right. When you see something is outrageous, you 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 see it as some kind of a mistake, you know, mm. something that should be fixed or destroyed. Right. And I and I really feel that uh, that uh, what is very very typical of uh, this this time is uh, the lack of uh, tolerance or curiosity or interest in other narrative. Because you know, when I look at a lot of the conflicts to, uh, today, I would say that even a decade ago. I would really think about the arguments that that, the, that people are raising, but now today most I, I, arguments I kind of uh, go uh, one level up, and I just look ab- about the way the way that people are arguing, the way that people listen or don't listen to the other. It's almost kind of like a meta perception. You know, I think that the pandemic is an excellent example for that because if you think about it, there are, you know you have you have many people who think that everybody should get vaccinated and that people that don't get vaccinated should have great sanctions. And there are other people who think that the, the, uh, that the institu- institutions are forcing people too much uh, to, to, to take vaccinations and are not giving them the freedom to take the wrong decision. Now, those, both those narratives are interesting and I'm saying, especially because this is not a political or ideological question, it's, it's merely a scientific question in, in source. Is it helpful? Isn't it helpful? Does it put people in danger? Doesn't it put people in danger? And you can see how the attitude of so many people to this objective question is, regardless of what they think, is just ex- extreme. You know, it's just intolerant. It doesn't matter if they scream about farm fascism or if they say that people who don't uh, get vaccinations should be locked in their home. It's just all about this kind of ideas that it's a uh, my way or the highway, which mm-hmm. is something that is very, very typical of, of this kind of social media era. That it doesn't matter what you think, you can you can build yourself easily a bubble where you'll be surrounded by people who think like you. And that all the people who don't think, think like you will be people that you don't personally know. So you don't have this bias that you respect them. You can just hate them, you know? And uh, it's really it's, it's really fun because I, I feel that the, the social media dynamic reminds me a lot of uh, uh, the dynamics that you have on highways. That, you know, when I drive a car and somebody cuts me, you know, and I stop him at the headlight and ask him to take roll down his window, and I say to him, "Hey, you motherfucker, who taught you how to drive, you ugly piece of shit?" You know, then, then basically, you know, sometimes during this conversation, I would say, "Oh, Mark, it's you. Oh my God, I haven't seen you in years, man. You lost weight, so you're still with your beautiful girlfriend." Yeah. So, so this switch is really the switch between being in a situation where you're totally alienated from the world against you, around you, and everything that is not for you is against you, and everything that is, is not in your interest is an abomination, you know, it's like the devil. And then suddenly you say, oh, I know this guy, he's actually nice, he can't drive, but he's such a great guy, you know? So, so, so I think that, that, that this kind of intimacy of really knowing people to kind of a put some counterweight to this road rage that we feel, you know, doesn't exist in the social media. The really, it's really like, it's the op- opinion we agree with, the opinion we don't agree with, and the people who carry the opinions we don't agree with, 
just have those silly photos in Facebook where they hold their babies as if they were lumps of wood or, mm-hmm. or you know, or piece of bread, you know, and they look <laughs> dumb and they say dumb thing and you have nothing to say for them, you know. They never gave you a bite of the sandwich. They never told you a joke. They just, you know, be expendable, you know. And I think, and I think that this is this is the thing that a literature would always try to fight because the idea of literature is really not a, 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 basically let's say in everyday life we see some we see things from one point of view and our survival mechanism is really built on alienating ourselves from people saying this guy isn't good for me I'm going to cross the street to the other side he's a lion I'm going to hide in the wood you know it makes kind of a, a survival this kind of sense but the moment that you go to telling stories then you can switch a point of view and the moment that you switch a point of view you can't see the other as the other you know it becomes a human being you know think about the Lolita or crime and punishment you know these are books that put you in the mind of a pedophile or a murderer and when you're inside this this mind you cannot uh, deny those characters humanity mm-hmm. and you cannot deny a uh, let's say the potential of a, of a going wrong uh, doing wrong in your own society because if I read Lolita, you know I'm not a pedophile but if I read this and I say oh yeah I once loved the girl the same way that this guy loves the girl and I was totally crazy and I did silly things okay she wasn't 15 she was 18 but basically I know what this guy is talking about so so this ability to make this kind of differentiation and say there are murderers and pedophiles who are bad, and there is me who is good. It's basically being challenged, you know, by this by this idea of saying, I'm human, they're human. I, I sometimes think about bad things, and most of the time I don't do them. They sometimes think about bad things, and sometimes they actually do them, and we're not that different. And I think and I think that that. Actually, the world really is in desperate need of fiction now because fiction, unlike nonfiction, it's not really it's not really as if you have this kind of wave breaker, you know, that the, of a fact that is going to stop whatever flow you have. Because the moment it's nonfiction, you know, we can talk about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and I could say we're occupying those lands, and you say no, we don't occupy, and I say in '68 we did that. And you say, oh, but in 73, we did that. And then I say, no, we never did that. And we are all in the data. But the moment I say to you, it's fiction, then we allow ourselves basically uh, to connect to humanity and philosophy and more obscure uh, 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 and actually higher ideas and not just kind of keep doing this really little uh, petty bureaucratic uh, information about which fact should be put where in our list. That is something I absolutely want to come back to, which is the the role fiction can play in such a crazy world. Um, but before that, I want to return to something you just said about um, the road rage case where and about trying to find people who are thinking like you on social media. It's sort of what we do. We just we just create these tribes on social media of people that are thinking like you. But something that you recently pointed out over the summer 
in an essay for a tablet magazine is that the you of social media is not the same as the you that you know generally. There's two yous. And th this is an amazing point that you made in this great essay. And the one you is that beautiful photo uh, that looks so great. I actually want to read a little bit out of, out of your essay um, because it, it really makes the point. And the saying, there's the same Edgar, as you write, um, but without the buck teeth and anxious eyes and with a little more sex appeal and a stronger, more manly chin. I know the picture doesn't look like me at all. And that's exactly why I love it, because it has sabotaged its original function as a representative of reality and taken on a different function. That picture is no longer a glance into a mirror that shows me who I am, but a look into a different dimension that shows me who I could be. Someone a little bit braver and more charismatic when the light hits him at the right angle. And you kind of sum it up with this one point, which says, the more polarized, unpredictable, and unstable the world becomes, the more crucial it seems to leave our shaky, battered bodies and relocate to a friendlier, more comfortable place. And I read that and I was like, oh my God, that's exactly what's happening. Our identities are being emptied into the this social media vacuum and to these these uh, silhouettes that were becoming on social media. And so my question about that is, how do you continue to engage as a writer when the, the readers are becoming silhouettes, when the readers are becoming representations of themselves and their activity is not, rather than to consume and digest material like yours, but instead of doing that, they're trying to just create and recreate and recreate this image constantly. Like, is there still a room for fiction in this kind of environment? Well, I think that, you know, that uh, fiction is, is many times there to challenge uh, uh, different narratives. And I think that, you know, the, the more uh, uh, dysfunctional and the more alienated the social media uh, 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 narrative will become, I think that the more inspired I'll be to write. Because, because I, if everything would be perfect, you know, I would just live my perfect life. But there is an aspect of it. Of I would say a pro protest in writing. You know, I always say to my student that writing is always the plan B. The plan A is to live. You know, it's like, and the plan B is if you can't live the way that you want to, you can at least write about uh, what you want to do or against what's happening now. And I I always say to my students that you know that the most beautiful uh, love poems, you know, the Shakespearean sonnet, they're always about unfulfilled love. Because, you know, if you're able to fulfill your love, you're too busy to write poems. You're with the person you love, making love to them. You know, you don't have time to write those bloody poems. But, but if they just dump you, then you say, I can't have them, but at least I can have a poem about them. So I actually think that, you know, that, that you know, when, that when they're going to get stuff, then I think the artist should get going because it's really interesting. Because, you know, I mean, let, let's say, uh, if when I when I went to my last vacation, there were uh, three girls coming there uh, in their late teens, and when we got to, to the resort, they told us that it's going to be sunny today, but it's going to rain for the rest of the week. So those three girls came with a set of all the swimming suits and all the clothes that they had, and they keep changing them and taking photos of themselves in this kind of two hours frame where it was still sunny. So they will have an Instagram photo for the next week, you know? 
Now, there was something about this situation of, of seeing those girls hysterically switching the clothes, you know, and then running to this perfect spot and then uh, uh, kind of putting their lips in this kind of weird instagram <laughs> way, you know, the girls put their lips yeah. in photos, yeah. that, that, that it looked some kind of an existential metaphor. It wasn't something that they say, oh, I don't want to write anymore. I say, yeah, I must be also like that, you know, when I have speaking engagements, so I don't uh, bring my lips out, but I try to give some kind of quote, I don't know, Nietzsche or Christeva, so people will think I'm smart, you know? Mm-hmm. So so whenever I actually see a fault, you know, it doesn't matter if it's in the zeitgeist or just an asshole I bumped into, it always kind of echoes something that I recognize, you know, both for myself and from humanity in general. So, I, you know, people wrote masterpieces in times of war and in times of great horror. And I must say that, you know, that we are not living in a time of war or great horror, but we are living in such a fucked up period that, you know, that any person who's interested in, in writing cannot say, I have nothing to write about. There's so mm-hmm. many crazy things to write about. Yeah, that's absolutely the case. And in addition to that, they have new ways of actually writing, meaning of getting to an audience. And, you know, that's also something I wanted to ask you about, because you somehow defied all of the odds as a writer of short stories that, you know, the if you talk to anyone in, in publishing that deals with fiction, they're going to tell you short stories don't work. And they've been preaching that for, for years and years and years. They always talk about the novel, blah, blah, blah. And you actually succeeded. You disproved the rule, um, which is quite incredible, but we're living now in a time where even um, disproving that rule within the world of publishing is, is is not really enough. It's kind of like the institution of publishing as many other institutions has become in a way problematic. Like people look at it and they see this monolith that's connected to so many levers of power and to money and to all the things that they're trying to avoid. And they're going to find different ways, different avenues to reach readers. And it's something that you, I believe, are doing yourself with a Substack. I mean, you would think, why would someone in your position who has this really incredible literary success and profile um, need to go around the institution? Why would you even want to do it? But that's something that you've chosen to do. And in choosing to start your own Substack, you have even, I believe, inspired other writers, including one of the most famous writers out there. You can speak a little more about that um, to do the same. So what is the what is this impetus to for writers like yourself and, and writers like those who you've inspired to do this, to do the same and go to find a Substack for themselves? Why do that when you have access to the publishing industry, to the institutions, to everything you need? Why? Why? find the alternate route? Well, well I, I, I think the newsletter idea is totally connected uh, to these two years of pandemic and uh, to me moving to Berlin. Because uh, I think that uh, as a writer, I must say that I'm a writer who loves uh, readings. I love live readings. I love uh, hearing stories you know, from people who, who enjoy my work. I love interacting with the audience. And in the time of the pandemic, you know, I couldn't do that as often. And I kind of missed that. And it gave me this feeling of uh, as if like, you know, if as if my writing was a little bit like shouting into a well, Mm. you know, because I publish a book every six or seven years. 
And in between, if, when you don't meet people and you just write your stuff, you say, does it really interest anybody or does it work or doesn't it work? And, uh, and uh, for me, uh, knowing that when I go to Berlin, I'm going to use even more of my kind of close proximity audience because I could, can't give my stories to my neighbors anymore or to my high school friends. Then I said, you know, I want to have this kind of a ecosystem uh, to which I write. And what I discovered through the newsletter, which I think, you know, in no way it's going to replace me publishing books or doing anything else, was that I could actually initiate a creative uh, collaboration. For example, I have this thing uh, that I call it a matchbox story. Every month uh, I ask the, the subscriber of the newsletter to inspire me by sending me a photo, a sentence, a plot idea. And I promise to take one of those ideas and to try and write a story out of it and dedicate the story, of course, to the person who gave me that idea. So there is something about it that I don't usually write this way. You know, I don't usually, somebody says, hey, can you write a story about squares? Hey, can you write a story about somebody who got reincarnated as a mango? You know, can you do that? And, and, you, and the thing about, about writing is that you can't write something that isn't your own. You know, you have to own it to write it. But what happens is that when people offer you all those kind of things, you say, wow, this thing, maybe I can own it. Maybe I can find a path through it. So uh, I've already written two stories that I really, really love that, I'm, that wouldn't have been written if not for my subscribers who sent me a beautiful photo or a wonderful sentence that had inspired it. So this kind of interaction is something that I love. Mm-hmm. There's another thing that I do in the newsletter that I really, really love is that uh, in, the, in, in the newsletter, you have those kind of uh, funding members, you know, it's like people who pay more money Yep. And they, they told me in Substack that you're supposed to give them something for it. You know, I don't know, send them a book or something. And I came up with this idea that uh, every funding member, I will name a, char- a character in one of my future stories after this hmm. person. Wow. That's cool. But so I won't come out this kind of a flatterer and ass leaker. It will always be a pathetic <laughs> character who will die a horrible death. <laughs> <laughs> so so I have this kind of tradition where I say, oh, yeah, and I have this guy. Yeah, this guy is going to be a demented elderly man who gets run by a bus. <laughs> yeah. so, so there is something about it that, that let's say, if, there, if writing is always kind of, for me, some kind of an implosion that everything goes into your brain, then suddenly mm-hmm. in the newsletter it goes into my brain, but I don't feel as much alone because I can take some readers with me, I can listen to the comments, I can say, would you want another story like that? And you know, and there is something in this fluidity that is very interesting. And what, what I discovered about the Substack newsletter, it's called the Alphabet Soup, that unlike, uh, let's say, publishing stories in social media, when I publish stories in social media, the people who get to read stories are people who are bored. Mm. You know, they're bored, so they go to Facebook, so right. they say, ah, Oh my God, this guy ordered this fish dish. What a nice photo. Oh, and this guy is inside shell and this guy is riding an elephant and Edgar wrote a story and it's all about on the same level. It's just about bored people dealing with their border. But when you do this kind of newsletter because people have to subscribe to it, then the commitment is really stronger. So you know that the people who are going to read your story are people who are interested in the story because they wouldn't have subscribed in the first place. 
And this creates a bond that is much better. You know, I mean, being Israeli and being always very opinionated about things, I always been in, there were always a points in my personal history where my Facebook page was filled with people not thinking politically like me saying, we just burn your books in the yard or we just flush them or we're never going to read you again or whatever. And you know, and there is something about those moments that it's always uh, very confusing, mostly because usually the people who write it can't spell and you say, how can't I have my books in the first place if they can't even spell and burn your books correctly? But but uh, but I think that even more than that, that you like to feel that, you know, it's like, let's say if my stories are my children, then you wouldn't want people to bully your children because of something that you did, right. you know? Which is, by the way, something that is very, very much popular now with cancel culture, you know? It's, it's not a, it's, it's really, really something that is beyond right-wing or left-wing thinking. It's just the zeitgeist. It's like you live in this kind of a place where you have a lot of lynch mobs riding around looking to hang people who have it coming, who has it coming. And some of those lynch mobs have the ideologies closer to you, and some of those lynch mobs have ideologies that are further from you. But they're all basically lynch mobs. They're all all riding around with torches looking for people to kill without a trial. So, so I'm saying is it kind of taking this step back and saying, you know, you know what, I'm in a newsletter and I kind of build this hierarchy where it's not about my opinion, it's not about uh, me, it's not about what I ate and where I go to vacation as a, pe- as a package deal. It's about my writing. You can like it, you can dislike it, you can criticize it, but don't tell me, you know, your story sucks and the, and the, the fish and chips plate that you put a photo of three days ago doesn't look tasty at all and your wife is ugly and your child is too short. You know, it's really, it's, it kind of, it builds this kind of a compartment and creates some kind of rules that they actually help me be in, in, the, in the mode that I want to be when I'm creative. Because when I'm creative, I take my defenses down, you know? So, so in social media, it was very, very difficult basically taking your defenses down when so you feel this kind of border and hostility around you. And and the, and that's why the newsletter was for me kind of a, a a huge change. It wasn't like kind of saying, oh, I tried this one, I tried something else. It was basically just kind of building my own club. And I can't help thinking that, you know, I don't know, those couple of thousands of people that are on my newsletters, it's like I feel that they are my homies, you know. Mm-hmm. Maybe yeah. they don't they don't identify with the, my ideas. Maybe they think I should write a novel, maybe they think that we don't like the endings of my stories, but we we kind of come from the same place. We we both seek a, some kind of an authentic truth. We both seek good stories existing. You know, we we are kind of those Amish guys uh, building our church. You know, in in this kind of a, a, in the a middle of a meadow, and not just a bunch of people running around in train station asking each other for a light. You know. Yeah, it's. It, it's what Seth Godin, who's the great writer and marketing guru, and I think he's a bit of a philosopher, actually, a thinker. Um, he called it a tribe, a, a tribe in the positive sense, uh, people who belong to something together and not the tribe in the negative sense, which is the the tribalism where we see on social media, where it's everybody get the pitchfork out when someone says the wrong word. Um, and it's just, I think the difference being that 
as you pointed out, you're delivering it directly to the person. So there's the connection is one to one, not one to four billion as it is on Twitter, which is a very weird thing. It's a very unnatural way to connect. Um, you inspired a writer to to, and I believe it's Salman Rushdie, yeah. if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah. It's Salman Rushdie, he gave an interview to The Guardian when he started also a Substack a, a, a newsletter. And he said that he, he had been reading my newsletter and it seemed as if I was having so much fun that he got jealous and he wanted to have some fun too. And first mm -hmm. of all, you know, it's a huge compliment and yeah. I really admire Rushdie's writing. But, but I think that, that it didn't surprise me that, let's say, a writer like him would jump on this wagon. And there are other writers, that I don't know, I can think about Gary Steingart or, or George Saunders. That yeah. I feel that they're more li like, likely to, to jump on this newsletter wagon than, than you know, a, many wonderful writers, I don't know, like Paul Oster or other writers that are more kind of class classicist, because mm -hmm. I feel that with Rushdie, there's also this kind of thing that he's always seeking a story. You know, it's, it's really, I think it's really the difference between, um, I would say, uh, some writers uh, are like kind of a, a agricultural uh, people, you know, say, with the writer novels, so they go out to the field and they plant things and, you know, and they go every morning and every morning after five years, they have something. But I feel that there are writers, you know, even novelists like Rushdie, that they are more like uh, hunters in the woods. Yeah. They're going around and say, oh, wow, yeah. you know, I can eat this thing off the tree. I can hunt this animal and eat it. And, and, and that they all the time seek the interaction with the story. They really don't want to create something that is not nothing, but they want to, to have some kind of a dialogue with the world mm. uh, through writing. And, and I do believe that these kind of newsletters are going to uh, uh, attract writers that are more into kind of experimenting and doing weird stuff that they didn't do before, then, then it would uh, drag in uh, classicists that basically want to write novels, which is a great thing, but I'm not one of them. Yeah, I know um, Patty Smith is another good example from nonfiction who's also done a substack or is doing a substack. Um, and also, you know, many great journalists are turning to that format because either they've been sort of marginalized by the traditional institutions or they've been pitchforked by social media or both. And they, this is a middle road, which is like a very interesting way to think about it. You have these extremes, the institution, and then you've got the, the mob. And in the middle, there's this new path. And I think that's also part of the reason why it's so interesting for people like you and like Rushdie. And, and I think that, you know, when I looked at Substacks, because I must say that when I wanted to start this newsletter and I talked with, let's say, my peers, most of them were against it. Hmm. They, said, they said, it's not a good idea. Wow. And basically, their argument was that those new newsletters are very good for kind of niche writing. Let's say if I write about the baseball defense players, mm -hmm. then, then I have my newsletter and everybody who's interested in baseball defense player will go to it. Or if I do a kosher dessert, you know, a, for the holidays, then people will go to that. Well, the idea is that fiction is something that is so wide that it's not, it doesn't fit a newsletter. And I told my friends that, that the, my feeling is that the a fiction writing in the 21st century is, is a niche thing, you know, because when I was 20, you would ask somebody, 
what are you reading? Now, today, to ask somebody if you are you reading books is a little bit to ask you, you are you vegan? Do you do Pilates? Do you climb mountains? You know, it's really a niche. Yeah. And, I, and, and, and I'm not saying it kind of in a sad voice because I really feel that, you know, it's not the fact that people read less fiction means that stories have been pushed away from my own world. You know, so people watch more Netflix series. You know, okay, I wish the Netflix series would all be amazing. Some of them are not, but theoretically some of them are good, you know. And so sure. it's, it's a different way to tell a story. But but I think that the, the idea that the... That, uh, let's say the, the fiction way of storytelling had become a more a, a kind of marginalized actually is a good excuse for us to have this kind of support groups, you know? Because like, I mean, if I like writing stories and if some people like reading stories, it's a little bit like uh, we are like the AA, you know? We are those kind of people that meet every week with our issues and problems and share them and one of, some of us tell stories and some of them listen to them and this is a great place to be in you know I really it's not as if I say I want to bring back the time where all the people in Israel would read the same novel and discuss it I don't think we're living in an age where this would be fitting it wouldn't work in a place that is not totalitarian if you have so many media options to force everybody to choose a certain kind of media and read a certain kind of text you know, we're exploding all over the place. But I think that in this time, it's really a good uh, move to say to yourself, I'm going to build myself my clubhouse and everybody who wants some tea, lemonade, cookies is going to come there and I'm going to tell them my story and it's going to tell me which ones they like and which ones they want me to write. It just seems as if they fitting, you know, for these times. I also think it's very natural into just to the form and to the format of, of fiction and of any kind of writing. You know, when we think about the Bloomsbury set of England, they weren't writing for a mass audience. They were writing for essentially for each other. And I think it was only, you know, post-World War II in America where fiction became mass media and where respectable fiction, good fiction, literary fiction became mass media. It was a blip on the radar for maybe 30 years, maybe 40 at the most. And I don't, I think for some reason we came to think of it as the, that's normal and that's the usual, that ma- that great fiction is mass market. But I don't really think that was ever the case aside from those 30 or 40 years. And maybe now we're coming back to something that is truly more natural to uh, to what fiction is, to what literary fiction is, which is something that is that speaks to a certain set of people who have shared beliefs and shared tastes. And that's good enough. That's more than good enough. It's great. I think that's essentially yeah, it's a, it's, I think that, you know, that, that past benchmark was some kind of a, a historical mistake. It was a moment in time, but, but yeah. it wasn't the way that things should, should have been done. And I can tell you that when I began publishing uh, my first collection of short stories uh, called Pipelines, came out in 92. And whenever they would interview me, I would say in, interview, in the interviews proudly that I've sold 800 copies. And uh, at some stage, the publicist of the publishing house called me and she, she asked me to stop saying that in interviews. Mm-hmm. And I said to her, why? And she said, because 800 people is, not, is ver- very little. And I said to her, I want to argue that the 800 people are a lot because yeah. I, I didn't come from the publishing world, so I couldn't compare it to anything. And I said to her, you know, in my elementary school, there were 500 children 
and I, and I didn't even know all the students. It's, so imagine more of all the uh, numbers is greater than all the people in my school had read this. This is a lot. And she said, no, this is very little. So I said to her, you know what? When you write a book that 800 people would buy, then you can say it's a little. It's a little. <laughs> Until then, I say it's a lot. Yeah. And I think it's really, really funny because, you know, I have many, uh, not many, but I have some writer friends who are really, really huge successes. And sometimes I could meet somebody like that and he'll be depressed. And I say to him, why? And he say, oh, I don't know. My last novel only sold 300,000 copies, you know? And I said to, to him, man, you know, when you, 20 years ago, when you were masturbating in the dorms and, and thinking of your first short stories, if I would tell you, that not 300,000 people, but the 20 people who find interest in it, and that one of them maybe would even tattoo an image from it on his arm, you know, you say, yeah, I'm happy. I don't want anything more than that. Right. And, and I think, and I think that, that when it comes to this kind of reaching large audiences, it's the same kind of a capitalist, capitalistic yeah. curse that you, that you see with all the word billionaires, you know? Yes. It's funny, I, I once saw a a documentary about Russian oligarchs. And, uh, and uh, one of the oligarchs said, when I meet millionaires, you know, I don't judge them. But when I meet a billionaire, I already know that he's fucked up. And, uh, and the interviewer said to him, why? And he said, well, because that guy, at some stage, he was a millionaire. And he had everything he could need ever for him and for his children. And he just kept going. So it means he's fucked up. And uh, and of course, the guy who was saying that was a billionaire himself, so he was kind of uh, reflexive. But 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 I think that, 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 that as a writer, I want an audience. I want people to read me. I want people to react to what I'm saying. I want people to to feel that it matters, you know. But the idea that somebody would tell me that uh, fifty thousand is okay and that uh, two million are a lot, but uh, two thousand five hundred is nothing. It's just a bullshit thought, you know. I think about Hom uh, Homerus, you know, uh, or you know when he would uh, uh, sit by campfire and tell people about the, the, the Odyssey, you know. Mm -hmm. Then how many people were there? Right. Twenty, right. fifty, eighty. You know, there were enough. Yeah, it's it's that hedonic adaptation where where too much is never enough, and this is the culture where we're educated by in tv and uh social media of course where you you've got the money you've got the success and now you need the abs and you get the money and the success and then the abs now you need the great charitable organization that you've created and on and on and on and on and on and there's just no end and i think that's why we do need a reset and probably why something like substack represents a reset for a lot of people, because you can start again. You don't have to be judged by those metrics. You can be just creating one-to-one -one and let it be just enough. And again, to return to Seth Godin, it's such a great notion that he advocates for, which is don't look for the maximum that you can do. Look for the minimum, the minimum that's viable and start with that. And that, that's the goal. And I think that is something we all need to remember especially people who are working in creativity and the arts. I mean, because we were caught up with Jonathan Franzen selling three gajillion copies of his book. And that's, that's the new metric. That's the benchmark. And it's insane. Yeah, it's like, it's like you know, I, when I look at my son doing physical training at school, 
then you know, as in physical training in school, most of uh, the countries it's the same. You know, the kids do a push up and then a, a bench presses and run around the yard and stuff like that. And I say, you know, this kid is going to come home and then sit five hours in front of his computer. Shouldn't we teach him how, how to sit properly? Right. You know, how to work on his posture? Wouldn't yeah. it be more useful? But in the bottom line, you see a bunch of kids that one of them can do uh, 80 push-ups and the other guy can do 85. You know, right. and both of them are disproportionate with very short muscles, mm-hmm. you know, and back pains, but they keep going on this kind of same uh, graph Kind of trying onward and upward, and I think, and I think that especially in creativity, you know, it's it's really more about kind of discovering new muscles and uh, finding flexibility in them and learning how to move mm. something that you were not able to move before. Than doing this kind of bodybuilder thing of kind mm. of you know just kind of having those humongous muscles that you only want to have muscles that are bigger than the person next to you. You know, I, I yeah. think really uh, there is something about about creativity, that it's more about discovering than about achieving. Yeah, I, I remember Stephen King talking about that with regard to the short story, is that everyone was always novel, 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 novel. And he's saying, take time to return to the short story for that reason. It's a different set of muscles. It's a different thing. It, it teaches you and you learn from it because it's really difficult to pull it off. Um, and especially the short stories that you write, which are really short. It's not, you know, that, and it's such a wonderful thing today where we're, we're just, you know, we're, we have this phenomenon of uh, TLDR too, too long, didn't read. And it's, it's such a gift where someone gives you something that you can read just now and on on the setting of the screen, just like the tablet essay by you that I mentioned earlier, what an incredible feeling to read this whole thing within a couple of minutes and really to understand it because you've given us what you've done the hard work for for us by distilling it to the to the most fundamental. You didn't make me do the work for you, which is to trawl through it and try to understand what he's really getting at. He's really trying to say and spending 35 minutes just to read it and then another 35 minutes to understand it. And that's an amazing, amazing gift that you give to your readers. Well, thank you. You know, I, I feel that this has a lot to do with the fact that when I studied in university, then basically my major was math and my minor was philosophy. And, and of course, there was a lot of things about those topics because I really liked lo- 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 logics, lo- logics in mm-hmm. math. Yeah. And I really liked also all kinds of logics in philosophy. And the idea of looking for oxymorons or trying to understand how the system didn't work was something that affected the topics that I wrote about. But the, but the aesthetics were very much influenced by the fact that in math and in exact sciences, a, a compatibility is appreciated. Right. It's like, it's like, you know, if somebody is a mathematician and you tell you my PhD was only six pages long, you know he's a genius. Right. But if somebody told, tells you that his PhD in philosophy was six pages long, they say, and they accepted that without footnotes, it has to be at least 500 pages long. Mm-hmm. And I really feel that, that, the, that math can be very, very complicated, but its reach is not to exclude anybody. You know, when you have the Pythagoras theorem, mm-hmm. there's something so beautiful about yeah. an idea that can be explained to a 10 years old, you know? Yeah. And this is the goal, 
while in humanistic, many times there is this idea that you want to dazzle your readers with the fact that you know much more than them and kind of put them in some kind of a stance in which whatever you're going to say will be built up. So I think that there was something in it that kind of a, a reminded me of the humanistic attitude, the ways that a, a, the etiquette that people would have in the courts of kings. You know, you're supposed to bow in a certain way and to be dressed mm-hmm. in a certain way and to pass through the guards in a certain way. And I say in the bottom line, after you do that, it's very, very difficult to, to remember what you wanted to say in the first place. Mm. You know, I mean, when you get to the king, you know, just to say to him, oh my God, I think I ate something bad. I think I had the worst <laughs> diarrhea ever. You know, you wouldn't even think of that because you was too busy of, you know, of wearing the crown the right way and yeah. nodding to the queen while not uh, ignoring somebody else. So basically all those kind of uh, codes became become the main thing and what you want to say becomes really, really minor. And when I came to mass, in the end, when you read the proof, what you have is this kind of pure and despair way of thinking. And that's what's interesting. The other stuff is really, really not interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, impressing, quoting, putting your stuff in context. It just is like saying, hey, look, there's a bird there. It looks really strange. And, mm-hmm. and I think that you know that the uh, the, the fact that I began writing while I was studying math really, really affected the mm. rest of my aesthetic choices. Yeah, I know. You know, I think that kind of decadence in in the um, etiquette, like we see. I don't know if you've ever read um, Radetzky March by Joseph Roth, but there's this elaborate sequence of that of just the, what you're saying. He's preparing to meet the emperor, um, one of the the minor characters, and he has to go through this whole bowing and the uniform and having it cleaned and all this stuff. And what it signifies is a, a dying culture when you have to go through so much to get to the point. Something is already rotten, um, and you're dressing it up. Um, but you know, I want to be respectful of your time. Thank you uh, so much for for being so generous. Um, two final small questions. One is, what are you reading right now? Uh, well, the truth is that in this kind of a German year, so my my strange rules then that uh, that I've made is that I only reread now things that I've read before. I don't read new mm. stuff. Uh, so. Because I I really want to create this kind of huge vacancy, you know, to which Mm -hmm. something new needs to be introduced. So I so actually the 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 books that I'm kind of uh, revisiting revisiting right now are uh, some of the Kurt Vonnegut novels because. uh, when I began writing, I began writing. I was inspired, I think, by two by two books. It was the uh, Kafka's Metamorphosis and other stories, mm-hmm. and good one with Slaughterhouse Five. And I think both of them kind of uh, served as some kind of uh, uh, models of writers who are incompetent and dysfunctional, <laughs> which I could identify with. Is that it's really opposite to the model of a. Uh, of let's say David Grossman or Amos that are writers that you know inspire me. I mean, like when you think about Kafka and Kurt Vonnegut, you know, the one thing that they had in common is that they, you would never hire them as your child's babysitter, or you would never let them stay at your home when you're on a business trip with your wife for a week. You know, 
these are the guys, you know, you say, <laughs> cannot be trusted. And I totally identified with that. So as a writer, I said, ah, okay, so you can also be this writer who cannot be trusted. Mm-hmm. And I felt that it's a good thing that kind of 35 years later, I will visit those texts that kind of got me going. Amazing. And and if anyone has never seen Vonnegut's um, great lecture, there's a video of it uh, talking about story and the structure of story, how there's only like, he breaks down like the five, there's only five storylines ever. And it's a really incredible video. I really recommend people watch it. And one last question, which is the first time I've ever asked this, what's your, what's your favorite cafe to write in, to sit in, to be in? Um, what What's something that really feels like your your cafe, wherever it might be in the world? Well, I must say, first of all, that I love cafes because I'm a bum, you know, and, I, and mm-hmm. what I like about the cafe is that it's a good excuse to sit someplace and look at other people without other people thinking that you're weird, you know, because when you sit in a cafe, it really gives you the perfect legitimation to eavesdrop or yeah. to look at other people without them noticing you. But I never write in cafes because there is something about the. I discovered it the hard way because you know when when I began writing, I thought you know the best thing would be to write in cafes because you know it's fun, it's nice. People around you will know that you write. You know, <laughs> the beautiful waitress would say, "Oh, what right. are you writing?" Right. And you know, and that's kind of something that you wanna you wanna get. But what I discovered is that when I write in the public areas. I have this kind of a tendency to conform. For example, mm. many times when I write home, not, not in Berlin, but in Israel, I write naked or in my underwear, you know? And the truth, it's not nice to say, but I, I have this tendency when I write, I part more. <laughs> I actually enjoy my part. I kind of write something and then I get up and say, oh, oh my God, that was good, you know? So, or I can pick my nose. I can do all those kind of things. Mm-hmm. When I, I'm in a cafe, you know, you kind of aware the, of the conventions around you, you know. Right. So you, you don't talk to yourself, you don't fart, you don't pick your nose. And mm-hmm. I think that in my case, it affects the way that I write because I tend also to conform in my writing. Mm. So, so, so I, for me, the best place to write in is a place in which I'm not perceived by anybody. Mm-hmm. And then I can be as weird as I want. Uh, and when it comes to cafe, I favorite cafes both in Tel Aviv and in Berlin. So which one? Would well, you let, well, let's go one for each. Right. So, so in Tel Aviv, there, uh, I, I, there is a, a cafe called the uh, Lafit, and it's on the corner yeah. of Jabotinsky and Dizengoff. And uh, and I, I I go to it a lot. And I must say that the main reason is that the uh, the guide store is like the Tel Aviv equivalent of soup Nazi. You know, he's really, really always very rude to people who come around and does all those kinds of peculiar things. So so I think that, first of all, I like going there because I appreciate the fact that he actually serves me coffee and usually doesn't curse me, you know, right. which makes me feel good things about myself. But also, it's a, it's, I think that a, it's always kind of, there's always action around there. So when you go, mm-hmm. you, you want to see what's going to happen in this episode in Itzik's life. Who is who's <laughs> going to fight this today? And uh, in Berlin, uh, there are a few cafes that I like, but there, there is one called the uh, Neue Liebe, which I really, really like uh, next, next to my own. It really, really looks, I don't know, like a caricature 
of a liberal left winger uh, hippies in the 70s or something you know mm. where everything is vegan and you know where it, it really kind of gives me this kind of feeling that when I see there that maybe if the entire world would be a little bit like these cafes and everything would be great we have mm. no more wars uh, in this world well thank you so much I will go I, I remember Love Eat and I, I remember they had a couple other locations I'm not sure if they're there was one on Nachlat Binyamin in Tel Aviv I don't know if it's there anymore but it was it was a really great cafe very good coffee but I'll check the the Jabotinsky yeah, yeah. And, and you know and if the guys start being rude to you say to him Itzik Edgar sent me <laughs> I'll try that. So Edgar Carrot, for everybody out there listening, go check out Alphabet Soup on Substack. Um, is there anywhere else people should find you or should is the Substack the best place to start? Yeah, Substack, I would say it's the best place. Like, I mean, you know, I have all those Instagram and other things, yeah. but I think that my interesting stuff is on Substack. Amazing. Well, so Alphabet Soup, one more time. Um, I'm going to go subscribe myself right now. And um, and thank you, Edgar, for, for doing this and for, for your time and for being so open and talking about your farts and your nose picking and your fiction. And uh, hopefully we'll talk soon. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for joining me today on the Burning Castle podcast. You can follow me on Twitter at Ashley Rinsberg, A-S-H-L-E-Y. R-I-N-D-S-B-E-R-G and follow the podcast on Twitter at Burning Castle and on Instagram at Burning Castle Podcast. Till next time.